Well, thank you, Nelson. Danny and I asked Nelson to sing that mostly because, honestly, I just needed to hear it and wanted to hear it. So thank you for ministering to us. What a what a tremendous song. I really do hope that that you hear the words, and certainly we appreciate the performance, but we know you're, you're here to minister to us, and so thank you for that. So if you would, let's join our hearts in prayer before we turn to God's Word. Lord, we thank you for that old rugged cross. Lord, we thank you for a song so powerful. We thank you, Lord, for words that speak so much. Lord, may we truly just cling to that cross today. Lord, hide us behind it. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom that's found in it. We thank you for the forgiveness, the removal of our shame. We thank you for the new life that's found, Lord, in your death. And God, as we turn this morning to look at all that you make new, we thank you, Lord, that we look back on the cross and we know that for us, that's where it started. So, Lord, help us today to see you clearly, to hear from you, and to respond accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nancy and I got married in 1999, and so it's been a, a little while now. And we, we first got married, and we neither one of us had a job. We had no money. We had no job. We had nothing. We were just going to live on love or whatever. You know, whatever. I don't know. And so we got married, and... And our, our first home, as a matter of fact, was in the basement of the, the what we used to call the BSU. It's BCM now. There's a little apartment down there, two-bedroom apartment. We were getting married, and Mark Witt was the campus minister who was taking over. And he said, look, he said, nobody's going to be living there. If y'all want to live there, you go ahead. And I said, okay, well, we don't have a place to live anyway. We got no money. He said, just cut the grass, and you can call it, you know, we'll call it even. So that's great. So when we finally did get jobs... We each had a job beginning in January of, of 2000. So she got a job and supported me for a while, and, and then I, I started to chip in. And we decided that we were going to buy a brand-new car because neither one of us had ever had a brand-new car. And so we each had these, these old clunkers, you know, that you drive in college, whatever. And so we decided we're going to get a brand-new car. So we went to the lot. And we picked out a brand new 2000 Dodge Neon. Y'all remember the Neon? Okay, a little thing, you know. So that was, that was what we wound up purchasing. And I don't know what the total purchase price was on it. Something like eleven or $12,000 back then. We probably wound up paying $25,000 for the thing with the financing. You know how it goes. But we wanted a brand new car. You know, a car that smelled new, that nobody else's french fries had been under the seat and all that stuff. I mean, that's, we wanted a brand new car. There's something about new that everybody loves. I mean, there's just something about it, whether it's a new pair of shoes or a, a new, in my case, a new ball glove or a bat or something like that. Boy, I get excited to go buy Hank that kind of stuff. Or, or maybe it's a new house. Some of you recently, maybe you've built a house or you've moved into a new place. There's something about new that we all love. We walk a little taller, we smile a little bigger, we have a little more confidence, we feel a little better about ourselves for whatever reason. We've got something that's new. And I felt pretty good about that 2000 Dodge Neon until I paid twice as much for it, of course, in the financing. But it was something about driving it off the lot. Boy, we got a brand new car. And we'll talk about new today. About throwing out the old and getting something that's brand new. But the new that I'm going to talk about this morning, as you probably can guess, is not the kind that wears out over time. It's not the kind that depreciates. It's not the kind that you'll have to replace one day. The new that we're going to talk about today 
is still new from day to day. It'll still be new 20 years from now. It'll still be new 50 years from now. It'll still be new for all eternity. It's the new that Jesus brings into our lives. And that's the new we're going to talk about today. We're in a series that's nearly finished. We'll finish it up next week. It's been called, it's, it's called I Promise. The idea is that we're looking at God's promises. What has He told us that He would do? We've kind of traced it through the different uh, major promises that God made to the Old Testament. We've looked at the, the overall promise that He made at creation. I will be your God and you will be my people. That, God, by His very act of creation, has created us so that He could be our God and we could be His people. And then we looked at His promises that He made even when Adam and Eve sinned, that God's going to restore what sin has destroyed. And then we, we saw Noah and the, after the flood, God said, look, I, I've, I've, I've judged and I've, I've, I've brought some, some uh, destruction here to the world. But he says, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not finished with the world. We looked at what he said to Abraham, that I'll, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. And then we looked at Moses and how he said to the folks there, the, the Israelites, I will come and I will live among you. And then to King David, he said, the best is yet to come. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw that, that even though there were threats to the promise, even though there were times when it looked like God wasn't going to be able or wasn't going to come through on what he said, that for every threat, God had a solution. And all the promises that we've discussed all lead up to one person. And his name is Jesus Christ, and he bursts onto the scene in the, in the New Testament. The story of the Old Testament unfolds, and I want to kind of give you this as sort of an intro to what we're talking about today to lead into so that we all are on the same page. The way that the Old Testament unfolds, and if you want to write this down, I'm a good Baptist preacher, I've alliterated all this, but it won't be on your outline, so I'm a bad Baptist preacher, I didn't put it there for you, okay? But they're all going to start with the letter P. Okay, so if you want to follow along, you can, you can do this and just make your little outline and be really impressed. Okay, at least look impressed. The, the way the story of the Old Testament unfolds, first you have perfection. When God created the world, it was perfect, exactly the way that he wanted it to be. In the Garden of Eden, you had sinless humanity. You had Adam, you had Eve, and they were sinless. They were perfect before the Lord. They were in perfect relationship with him, total harmony and perfect relationship with one another. And they had the perfect environment in which to live. Nothing was messed up at that point. It was set up perfectly for life as God has intended. So, so you have first perfection, and then you have lots of problems. There were lots and lots and lots of problems. And the problems all started with the main problem, which was sin. There was temptation, then they thought about it. And just as a side note, when you encounter temptation, do you know what the advice of Scripture is? Whenever you encounter some temptation... It's not to stand there and look at it, rationalize a little bit and think, well, how far can I go here? Still not be in sin. I wonder, can I, can I, can I experience that just a little bit? Do you know what, especially pertaining to sexual temptation, do you know what the scripture says to do? Run, flee, run, get away. I had an old baseball coach that once told me, he was talking about me and Nancy and he said, look, said, if ever, if ever you get too tempted, he said, just go run around a flagpole. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he said, in my house, we had old flagpole outside. He said, my dad used to always tell me, if you get too much into temptation, just go run around out there. You won't be thinking about temptation no more. Run out, what in the world? Run, it was the main thing. Run around the flagpole. Get out. Temptation, however, was contemplated by Adam and Eve. They didn't run from it. And so they rebelled against God as temptation became very appealing to them. God said there would be problems if they sinned, and there were lots and lots of problems. Not only problems for them, 
but problems for everybody after them. Sin grew quickly. But the problem wasn't just what humans did. And understand this this morning. Our problem is not just what we do. It's who we are. I want you to get that. Because if who you are has never changed, what you do doesn't matter. Because you know as well as I do that we can clean up our act on the outside a little bit. We can kind of perform for one another and we can put on a good show and we can make it look like we're good Christian folks. But if who we are has never been changed, then we're still as lost as we were before we tried to put on the act. And so the problem wasn't just what people did, which was sin. The problem was who they are, which was sinners. And so that went pretty deep. And so sin spread quickly, and it got worse as time went on. But in the middle of all those problems, there were also lots of promises that we've seen. So you had the perfection, which was messed up by the problems, but in the middle of the problems, you got these promises. God made several promises about what He was going to do for His people. And that's what we looked at in the sermon series. I've I've mentioned, He said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. He said, I'll restore what sin has destroyed. I'm not finished with you yet. I'll bless you, and I'll make you a blessing. I'll live among you. The best is yet to come. And for every threat, I've got a solution. God, over and over and over in the midst of the problems, kept making promises to his people. You see how faithful God was. And also in the middle of those problems, there were lots of prophecies. We haven't really looked at, at this much, but, but the promises were sort of prophetic. And, and you've got a whole section of your Bible that deals with prophecies. Now, prophecy, for the most part in the, in the Old Testament, just so you know as a reminder, if you've heard me talk about this before, then, then this will be a reminder. But most of the prophecy that we think of in the Old Testament, most of the prophets simply said, here's what God says. They weren't just foretelling the future. They were telling it how it is. Thus saith the Lord, the King James renders it. And so most of the time they're just speaking, look, here's what God says. Let me remind you again of what God has already told you. But there were times when they did speak on behalf of God and tell people, here's what's going to happen one day. Now, a lot of times the message was a warning. If you keep doing this, let me tell you what God has said he's going to do, and let me tell you what will happen. In fact, you see in the, in the Old Testament prophecy, lots of warnings about, look, you're, you're going to be removed from the land. The nation's going to be destroyed. This isn't going to go well for you guys if you keep going down this path. They reminded the people over and over of what God said would happen if they weren't obedient and if they weren't faithful to their end of the deal. So as you can imagine, they weren't real popular. These guys weren't, uh, hey, come on into the house, let's sit down and chat. Tell me all the warnings of God today. It wasn't like that. They weren't real popular guys, and most of the time, people didn't listen. They did what they wanted. They ignored what God said. Does it sound familiar to you? This uh, thing we're dealing with in our country these days, where people do what they want, ignore what God says, not a new thing. It's always been the case. You know why? Because who we are is the problem. Not what we do, it's who we are. Is the problem. But anyway, the prophets talked and, and people didn't listen and the problems got worse. Funny how that works. They didn't want to do what God wanted to do and things got worse for them. The truth of the matter is, and, and young people in particular, hear me on this one. The truth is that when you don't live in accordance to God's will and God's word, things have a tendency not to go the way that they're supposed to go in your life. Now, let me just tell you, life's hard to begin with. It's going to be hard. I was I was trying to coach Hank a little bit yesterday on some hitting stuff, and I just told him, I said, Hank, it's going to get harder as you get older. You know why? Because the pitchers get better. 
They get better. They throw harder. And they throw stuff you're not ready for. And it moves and it breaks. And they're trying to get you out. I said it gets harder as you get older. Young people, listen, life gets harder as you get older. It just does. You think your parents, ah, they got no problems. Grandparents, they're just loving. They bring you gifts all the time. Listen, life's hard. An undisciplined life apart from God is not only hard, but it's extremely painful. When we don't live in accordance with God's word and his will, our problems are compounded. We become part of the problem. Just understand that. Learn from history. Anyway, the the prophets talked not only about warnings, but they also brought some hope. They weren't just doomsday guys. You know, they weren't just bullhorn guy on the corner screaming and yelling at you. God's going to get you. That's not what they were just talking about. They also talked about hope. Because even when they predicted that God was going to bring judgment, they also said, look, God's also going to bring redemption and restoration on the backside of that. Even when the prophets uh, told that, you know what, the exile is coming. We looked at the exile a couple weeks ago when they're going to be shipped off to different countries because of all their sin. He said, but the prophets told them, but one day God's going to restore all that. He's going to make everything different one of these days. And beyond even that, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they spoke of a person who would one day come to make everything new. They spoke of a, of, of a guy who would be on the scene, and one day that person would live as God's son, unlike what Israel was able to do. The Bible talks about Israel being God's son, and how God's son had failed And so ultimately, one day, there would be a new son of God that would appear on the scene and take Israel's place. The prophet said that this person would obey God perfectly, something that Israel never could do, and he would suffer and die. And so the Old Testament ended with those prophecies and the people waiting for them to happen. And then came the New Testament, 400 or so years after the end of the Old Testament, Jesus bursts on the scene in the New Testament. And in Jesus Christ, we see all of God's plans and all of God's purposes and all of those old prophecies fulfilled. And so it all culminates. The perfection is messed up by the problems. The promises and the prophecies tell about a person who shows up on the scene In the New Testament, and Jesus fulfills everything God had promised. I will be your God, and you'll be my people. I'm not finished. I'll bless you, and you'll be a blessing. I will live among you. The best is yet to come. For every threat, I've got a solution. All of that culminates when God took on a human body and came down to us. And so God's perfect creation was messed up, filled filled with sin and problems. But in the midst of the problems, there were promises, there were prophecies. And at the right time, a person, Jesus Christ, came to fulfill all all of those prophecies. The scripture we're going to look at this morning, along with really the rest of the New Testament, provides the proof that Jesus was the person that God had sent to right all of the wrongs and to restore things back to his perfect world. He really is the one through whom God makes all things new. And that's the point this morning, and that's the promise of God in Jesus. We're going to look at it in two parts. This morning we're going to look at what happened when Jesus came the first time. And next week we're going to look at it, what happens when Jesus is going to come back. So we've got two parts. This morning I want you to get the point. I'm just going to go ahead and give you the point for next week too, so if you don't want to show up, that's fine. But I'm going to give you the point for this morning. The point this morning is that the promise in Jesus Christ from is that I make all things new. 
That's what God does in Jesus. I make all things new, He says. Now next week, just so you know, the, the, the point will be, I will make all things new. Okay? There, that's, that's what you got. I, I make all things new, and then next week I will make all things new. We'll talk about when He comes back the second time. But anyway, I want you to turn this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've got a Bible handy or a tablet or a smartphone or something like that and want to get to it, we're going to look this morning at just a few verses that really give us, here's the newness that Jesus brings. Here's, here's what happens. I let up all that stuff to let you know that Jesus is the promise of God to make all things new. You want some proof? We're going to look at that this morning in Paul's life in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now let me give you a little bit of context, what's going on, why Paul wrote this, and who he's writing to, and so on. There was a church, a group of people that Paul had gathered together and formed a church in a place called Corinth. They were known as the Corinthians. And Paul was writing to them. This was actually the fourth letter. We, we don't have two of them in our scripture. Two of them became recognized as anointed word of God. He wrote two others that, that sort of filled the gaps for the church. But, but this was, this is known to us as second Corinthians. And some of the people there in the Corinthian church were questioning whether Paul had the right to speak on behalf of God. And he had written them another letter. If you go back and read 1 Corinthians, you'll understand why some of them are questioning, why does he have the right to speak to us? You know why? Because Paul wasn't real nice in the first letter. He wrote a not-so-nice letter, and he told them, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads, and you're out of line. That's what he told them. Y'all are dumb, and you're doing the wrong stuff, and you don't love each other, and there's disunity. Now, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church that fought a lot. So far here at Elm Grove, we haven't fought a lot, and that's good. You know, maybe maybe either we're just faking it or we really do like each other. I don't know. We don't fight a lot here. But Paul was writing to a church. They fought all the time. They just plain didn't like each other sometimes. And he was telling them, y'all got to get your stuff straight. This is not right. And so you can imagine they didn't really like that. Paul would have been a terrible TV preacher. You know the TV preachers, man, they're just telling you how great you are and how wonderful you are and how you can have everything you've ever wanted right now so long as you send in your 10 bucks or whatever it is, you know, and they'll give you the, the prayer hanky that they cried on, all that stuff, they're going to send it to you and your life's going to be great. And they're just encouraging and uplifting. They smile all the time with you know, all the big arena and all the money and so on and the $5,000 suit. And I'm just I'm not being cynical. I'm just telling you the truth. And so, <laughs> so anyway, Paul would have been a terrible TV preacher. You know why? He just told it how it was. Y'all are stupid. You're in sin. You need to repent. Now, what if I, I mean, I could stand up and give that message. And some of you might, well, hold on now, wait a minute. We thought we liked this guy for a second. That was Paul's message to him. Y'all are wrong. And you got to get this straight. And so some of the people in the church said, hold on just a second. I ain't sure we like this guy. And who is he in the first place to stand up and tell us what we need to be doing? They questioned whether he really was an apostle called of God and sent by God. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians really to prove to them that that's legitimate. I am an apostle. So he talks a lot about his sufferings and how he equates those to here's what Jesus went through. Here's what Jesus told me I'd go through and look, I've, I've been suffering. And then he gets to chapter five and he talks about how Jesus has made him a brand new person. If you don't know anything about Paul's story, he used to be a pretty rotten guy toward Christians. He was what was called a Pharisee, very religious people, but they did not believe that Jesus was the son of God, that he was the Messiah. And so they sought out to kill and destroy everything they could that was proclaiming the message of Jesus. So they said, this is a problem. Paul was the leader of the pack. 
He was the guy that wanted to destroy Christianity as much, if not more, than anybody. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 to talk about the change that's taking place in his life to prove that Jesus was who he said he was. And so it's Paul who's going to give us some proof. And in Jesus, God makes all things new. Now let me tell you a few things that can't make you new. Some of you made some New Year's resolutions. you remember what they were? Uh, uh, let me pull out my notes app on my phone. Scroll up just a little bit. Nope, don't remember. Resolutions won't make you new. I'm going to make a decision. No, you won't. Willpower will not make you new. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to eat that donut. You ever done that? Man, that donut looks good. Oh. Willpower can't change you. Effort can't change you. I'm really going to try harder this time. You done that? Doesn't work, does it? Paul lays out several things that are made new because he recognizes that Jesus and Jesus alone can make us new. So maybe you, you and I both, I, I tell everybody, I put a mirror up, I'm preaching to myself, but there's several things that Paul says are made new when you come to Christ. The first is you have a new motivation. In Jesus, God promises that I make all things new, he said. One of those things is a new motivation. I want you to look, we're just going to look at a few verses this morning and we'll close. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5 is a great, great chapter. It's a great book. I would encourage you to to read the whole thing. I'm just going to focus on a few things this morning. He says here, he he talks about the fact, if you back up just just one verse, he says, for if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we have a sound mind, it is for you. What he's saying is, look, I don't care how I appear. If I appear to be crazy, it's because I've given my life to Jesus and I don't care what people think of me anymore. Now, if I appear that I, you know, I'm in, I'm in my right mind and I'm really trying to minister to you, hey, that, that's, that's good because that's what I hope to reach you for the gospel. Paul just says, look, I don't care anymore what people think of me. And then he gets to verse 14 and he says this. Here's his motivation. For Christ's love compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. Another version might say that Christ's love controls us. That's why I do what I do, he says. That's why I've given my life to serving God and serving others, even his enemies. Everything, Paul says, everything I do comes from the place of being loved by Jesus and wanting to love others as he has loved me. The motivation of Paul was the love of Christ. Now let that sink in for just a second. And compare that to why it is you do what you do on a daily basis. I mean, if I'm honest with myself, my motivation sometimes ain't the love of Christ. You know what I mean? Paul says, no matter what I do, I do it because it's the love of Christ that compels me and controls me. That's my motivation. That's why I do what I do. If you want some evidence of salvation, maybe you're to the point where you say, you know, I'm doubting whether I've, I've, I've even got salvation from the Lord. Some of these things today might help you recognize which side of that you may be on. Do you have a new motivation? Are you compelled by the love of Christ? Now, that ought to convict us a little bit. It, it ought to inspire us, and it ought to set our ambitions on the right course. Paul wanted them to know that now that he knows Jesus, his only motivation in life, the reason he gets up in the morning is because Jesus has loved him and he wants to love others like Christ has loved him. He has a brand new motivation. You ever seen somebody like that? 
I mean, their motivation is simply to display the love of Jesus to everybody they can. And they may look a little weird sometimes. Paul says, if I'm out of my mind, it's for the Lord. I don't care. But you know what? They also minister to a lot of people, don't they? He says, if I'm in my right mind, it's for you. They have a new motivation. Secondly, there's a new purpose. These all kind of flow together. Verse 15 puts it this way. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Now, what's crazy about our world, when I think about this, we don't know what to do with stuff like this. We have mixed messages. We're told, and we tell young people, look, just follow your heart. You do what you want. Don't worry about anybody else. And people put stuff, young people, are, are they do this all the time. They put something on Facebook, and everybody rallies to their defense. And you just do what you need to do, and you do for you. You know, you take care of you. Don't worry about anybody else. You just be you. And then you see on Facebook or social media or wherever these stories of people who've sacrificed so much and so much selflessness and all that. And we just, oh, it's so love, man. You're just such a loving, giving person. Those are mutually exclusive. You realize that? You can't just do for yourself and say, just follow your heart, do whatever you want to do, and then also celebrate the sacrifice of somebody. It's hypocritical. It doesn't make any sense. We have to choose one or the other. We're either going to live for ourselves or we're going to live for someone else. And all of us, every day in every situation, make that choice. Paul said in verse 15, And he died for all so that those who live, that's us, should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. You cannot both live for yourself and live for Jesus. It is impossible. You tried it? It's impossible. Paul knew true freedom and joy comes from self-forgetfulness and from serving the Lord with humility and gladness. That's where true joy comes from. The most joyful people I've ever met, the most joyful people I've ever met have come to the point where they decided, I'm no longer living for myself. And it's not a one-and-done decision. You realize that Jesus said, die daily. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's a daily thing. But they live for the Lord and they live for others. And it's evident when someone has been made new. Because it says there they no longer, it's a, it's a change. They no longer live for themselves. It's a very distinct difference. It's a reorientation of the purpose of your life. You have a new purpose, not for me anymore, but for the Lord and then for whomever he puts in my path. Paul says, I once lived only for myself, only for what I felt, only for what I wanted. And now Jesus has changed all of that. And when you know Jesus, you have a greater purpose than living for yourself. Young people, uh, some of the adults in here are already too far gone, all right? I'm just going to talk to you for a second, okay? They're too far gone. I can't do anything with them. But listen, there are some, there are some people in this room who have decided at one point or another to no longer live for themselves. They've let Jesus invade their heart. And he's taken over their life and they no longer live for themselves. Follow those people. You have a choice to make and it is to live for yourself or it is to live for the Lord. And those are mutually exclusive, meaning they cannot both be true. They cannot both exist at the same time. You cannot both live for yourself and live for the Lord. It is a choice to make. Can I guarantee you everything's going to go perfect in your life if you live for the Lord? No. I'd be a terrible TV preacher too. Can't guarantee you that. 
But I can guarantee you, you will find yourself right here in the middle of God's will where Paul found himself. And Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this world to be nothing compared to the weight of glory one day I'll experience. Make a choice. It's either going to be to live for yourself or to live for the Lord. The new purpose Paul experienced was to live for Jesus. He also had new feelings if you look at verse 16. You realize Jesus doesn't just change your eternal status. And He doesn't just change sort of what you believe. He also affects how you look and feel toward other people. Look at verse 16. From now on then, we do not know anyone in purely in a purely human way. Even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet we no longer know Him in this way. What Paul is saying here is that I don't look at anybody on the outside anymore. I don't see them as just a, another human being who displays these traits physically and they act this way and so on. I don't look at anybody that way anymore. What I look and see is who are they? You are not who you are on the outside. You are who you are on the inside. Paul says, I don't look anymore in a purely human way, just judging them based upon what they're good at and how smart they are and how influential they are and what family they came from and what part of town they grew up in and the education they've received and and, and so on and so forth. I don't look at people like that anymore. And so to Paul, there was no one who was superior. I, I love I love when we get together on Sunday mornings. I really do. There, there are some folks here who got a lot of money. We could send it around again if you want to. <clears throat> Listen, there are a lot of folks here who got a lot of money. There are some folks here who got nothing. There are some folks here who've got a lot of education. There are some folks here who dropped out in eighth grade. There are some folks here who, who can still work and work and work and work. There are some folks here who can't do that anymore. We have men, we have women, we have young, we have old, we have everybody in between. And you know what? Not a single one of us is better than the other. Not a single one of us. It doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. God does not look at you better because you've earned more and you've accomplished more in this world. He looks straight to your heart and do you know Jesus is the only question. Paul says, I don't look at anybody more in a human way. And may it be true of me and may it be true of you that when we look at one another, we see each other on spiritual grounds, not on what we have here in this world. New feelings, Paul said. I don't see anybody as superior, and I don't see anybody as inferior. We all stand on level ground before the old rugged cross, every one of us. That'll revolutionize your relationships, just so you know. Because there are folks, and you can be honest this morning, that we look to and say, man, they are just something, boy. And then we look at folks and kind of say, well, I don't know. What if we began... To see people, as Paul describes, that he learned to see them. It'll revolutionize also how you feel about yourself. Because some of us have gotten to the point where we feel pretty good about ourselves. Why? Because our status in this world is pretty good. There are some of us who feel pretty rotten about ourselves. Why? Because our status in this world is terrible. But when you begin to look, not from a human standpoint, but as Christ sees you, there is no one superior, no one inferior. We all stand on level ground. So Paul says he's got new motivation. He's got new purpose. He's got new feelings. And all of that stems from what he talks about in verses 17 to 21. And that is the new life that he's been given. 
I'm going to read it to you. Look at it in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Everything is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. All of the motivation, all of the purpose, all of the feelings, they all stem from the new life that Paul was given in Jesus Christ. This, for us, is where it begins. Listen, don't leave here today with a new motivation. Don't leave here today with a new purpose. Don't leave here today with new feelings. Leave here today on the solid rock of new life in Jesus Christ. He'll take care of your motivation. He'll take care of your purpose. He'll take care of your feelings. Paul says there is a new creation. You know what that means? The old is completely gone. What did I tell you from the beginning? What was the problem? The problem is sin. Not what we do, but who we are. Guess what Jesus dealt with? Not what we did only, but he dealt with what? Who we are. Paul says if you are in Christ, if you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that who you are has been dealt with. You are no longer a broken down sinner. No longer. You are a saint of God, a co-heir, a co-descendant, if you will, with Jesus Christ, a friend, a brother with Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. How do you feel about yourself this morning? Are you standing on God's truth? The message you're speaking to yourself, is that is it that message? That I am a new creation, the old is gone, and behold, all things have been made new? Is that the message? Are you telling yourself you're a broken down, rotten, completely awful, terrible person who deserves to die? What are you telling yourself? If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have been made new. You are a new creation. That's who you are. You say, well, what about what I do? I don't care about what you do until who you are has been dealt with. And if who you are has been dealt with, guess what? God's just working on the stuff that you're doing. Let him deal with that. Give that to him and say, Lord, you know these habits, this leftover stuff that I'm dealing with. But God, I want you to deal with who I am. The old is completely gone. It's all in the rear view mirror. As we used to like to do when I was playing ball and we couldn't come to an agreement, when it was just us kids playing, if it was me and Max said I was safe, and or Max said he was safe and I said Max is out, we couldn't come to an agreement. Max going to argue with me. I'm going to argue with him. You know what we'd eventually do? Do over. Let's have a do over. We can't agree on it. You know what the Lord has done? Because we came to an impasse. We could not come to him as sinners. And so you know what he did in Jesus Christ? A do over. Not that you and I have to do, but that Jesus did. A do-over on our behalf. And so what is true of Jesus? God says in verse 21 here, he, he who made, he the one who knew no sin, he made him to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know who Jesus is? The righteousness of God. You know who we are? Sinners. You know what happened? An exchange, a do-over. We couldn't get there, so he did it for us. A fresh start without even going anywhere. And so the next time those old thoughts of who you used to be come up in your mind, you can say, no, 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 no. I'm not who I used to be. 
I am based upon the Word of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am a new creation. The old is gone. Now, I may still deal with some residual effects of who I used to be, but I am not that person. I have been made new by Jesus Christ, and what is true about Jesus has become true about me. I am forgiven and free. And so now what? And Paul wrote another really helpful letter to the Galatians, and I want to read you one verse. It really sums up for me what Paul's life was all about. He says in Galatians 2, the end of verse 19, and then through verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Older, a little more formal versions render it this way. You'll see it on the screen. It says, not I, but Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What's my response today? Not, Not I, but Christ. For my salvation, not me, but Christ. For my marriage, not I, but Christ. In my home, not I, but Christ. In my work, in my thoughts, my attitudes, my effort, my emotions, my decisions, and in my very life, not I, but Christ. Everybody loves new. Everybody loves new. And I wonder this morning, would you say, for your life, or for some part of your life, would you say, Lord Jesus, make me new? That's the promise of God in Christ that God says, I make all things new. It is his promise. If you believe anything about the scripture whatsoever, believe that when you ask him, he will make you new. The Bible's clear on it. God does not go back on his promises. Everybody loves news. So I wonder, would you ask Jesus to make you new today? Would you ask him to make your marriage new, to make your home new, to make your work life, your thoughts, your attitudes, your efforts, your emotions, your decisions, all of that? Would you ask him, Lord Jesus, make me new. Give me a do-over. The Bible says very plainly that he will freely forgive and make you new. Let's pray together. In the next few moments, if there's something on your heart and you just say, man, I I need to talk to somebody, I need to pray with somebody, while they sing in just a minute and play, I, I'm going to be standing right here and I'm not going to call you out and I'm not going to try to embarrass you anyway, but if, 